among the group of us who were willing to do this, there was still some uneasiness about whether this was like, quote unquote, allowed, <laughs> um, and whether this would be uh, something that we could get in trouble for, or like, would we get asked questions that we didn't know how to answer, and then that would make the problem even worse, because it would make this sort of look bad. Pocket Day is briefly back from our hiatus. Today, we have an episode for you about a group of Stanford PhD students who took the initiative to share the science behind implicit bias with their classmates. We hope it can serve as a little teaser for our next season. understand today's episode, you'll need a little insight into an academic tradition that's nearly 200 years old, a journal club. Journal clubs are named for the journals or magazines that academics publish articles in. In a journal club meeting, people gather regularly to read, discuss, and evaluate a particular scientific article, which is often called a paper, as a group. Papers and journals are the main way scientists communicate their research to each other, So journal clubs play an important role in helping scientists collect information and evaluate the science being done in their field. Sometimes journal clubs are informal gatherings of scientists with similar interests, and sometimes journal clubs are formally required courses that PhD students take in the first few years of their program. Either way, journal clubs are a great way to delve deep into a particular scientific topic, as our guests did in a very special way. The story today starts with a group of Stanford students who were frustrated with the gender bias they saw every day in their neuroscience PhD program, and with the inadequacies of required short-form bias training. They decided to take matters into their own hands. They turned their program's Neuroscience Journal Club into a seven-week in-depth course on the science behind implicit bias. So what exactly do we mean when we talk about implicit bias? Well, First, we need to contrast between explicit bias and implicit bias. Bias generally stems from stereotypes or generalizations we make about certain groups of people. Explicit bias, or stereotypes, are the ones we mention out loud, while implicit bias refers to stereotypes that we might not be consciously aware of. Maybe an illustration will help. An explicit bias would be believing and saying that men are better at math than women. A corresponding implicit bias could be that even though I think men and women are equally good at math, I'm more likely to trust a man's calculation of the tip on a dinner bill than a woman's. Thankfully, a group of social psychologists at Harvard have developed a tool to measure implicit attitudes. This tool is called the Implicit Association Test. We've linked to it on our website so you can try it yourself. So how does this implicit association test work? Essentially, it's a matching test between different identifiers like race or gender and different attributes like intelligence or trustworthiness. The idea behind this is that if you associate men more strongly with intelligence, you'll react more quickly to match the word man to the word smart than matching woman to smart. Based on your reaction times over a number of trials and sessions, this test can measure the strength of implicit associations. The science behind implicit bias is deep and well-researched. 
But as you'll hear, scientists who are not social psychologists are often not very well versed in implicit bias research. To help introduce their peers to the science of implicit bias, Jesse, Avery, and Ariel, three Stanford Neuroscience PhD students, spearheaded a journal club focused on implicit bias. My name is Jesse Verhein. I'm a fifth-year MSTP student at Stanford and a third-year in the Neurosciences grad program. Hi, I'm Arielle Keller. I'm a third-year graduate student in the Neurosciences program. I'm Avery Krieger. I'm also a third-year student in the Neuroscience program at Stanford. To start off our discussion, we asked Jesse, Arielle, and Avery what led them to focus on implicit bias in their graduate program's journal club. So we had had a few, we have some, um, what are they called, professional development sessions in journal club throughout the year. We've had a few of these uh, professional development sessions that have been on things like bias and diversity, and it's been it had been frustrating in those sessions because often, um, you know, first of all, it's a lot of research to present in a short amount of time. And also often it would be, um, you know, a STEM professor who cared about this, who would come in to give the talk, but they would be summarizing a bunch of literature that wasn't their primary focus when they're a really busy person running a lab. And so people in the audience who were maybe um, a bit more resistant or hadn't been, you know, uh, you know, the target of this bias as much in their past would kind of ask these very probing questions about controls in a particular experiment that only showed up in, you know, one panel on one slide. And often the presenter just couldn't know the research that well. And so I think like the way that Journal Club is set up, it really is to kind of like dig at the data and probe at it. And that would happen, but there was no ability to respond to it within the session. None of the rest of us had read the literature and knew it well. And so then it became kind of almost like the uh, validity of all the points they were making making was being questioned and uh, kind of discounting the experiences of people in the program because then basically all we had to fall back on was anecdotal evidence. Um, and it's also nice to not feel like you were having to use stories about your peers when you felt targeted by them as your only evidence because obviously then it'd be hard to move forward as a program. So we decided that if we could take a whole quarter to kind of dig into literature and learn about it and read it ourselves, that that would help us both understand what was real and what wasn't and have a better sense of how to address it within our own group. Yeah, and I think in doing that too, we kind of realized how little we knew of that data ourselves. Yes. Even if we had lots of anecdotal experiences or had heard these from other people, that we we weren't necessarily armed with the data for when we were asked about it or when trying to make a case for change in um, the program in general. So um, part of this was being able to arm ourselves with that data and really understand it in a deep way, but also to give that to other people so that they could then go to different groups and advocate for policy change based on the data. And the, the last point that I would throw in here is that the, the sort of the utility of these professional development sessions was aimed, I think, initially at, at disseminating like some summarized form of the data. And I think you, as a member of an audience, can hear that once, you can hear it two times, you can hear it a million times. Like, it doesn't get more impactful after you've heard it a couple times. It's just you're hearing the same, like, oft-cited stories that people have told in their research over and over again about important things. But it sort of isn't – it stops being as compelling or it has, like, diminishing returns. And so I think part of the idea was for us to go a little bit deeper in terms of, you know, we, we can look at the data and we can evaluate it and we can help talk about it and disseminate it. But also there's things like interventions that have been tried and there's, you know, like this whole other like, area that could be explored that I think we wanted to zoom in on. Yeah, and I think until you really dive into the data, you don't know what's missing either. So, like, it gave us kind of a sense of where the gaps were in the literature and, like, what stuff we, we need to be collecting data on in the future. Oh, and there was one other strategic thing, which was that, you know, you can miss one professional development session a year. It's also very easy in those sessions. You're not, you know, really required to do any related work, so it's pretty easy to just sit in the back and work on your computer 
it's kind of frowned upon culturally, but it's allowed. So it's easy for people to check out. And we thought, you know, if we have a whole quarter, people have to, in order to pass the class, have to write these evaluations, have to somewhat reflect on the content of what we're presenting in some way. So it would kind of force everyone to at least listen to some of what we were talking about and process it, even if this wasn't affecting them as much in their day-to-day lives. Part of it was also because the culture of the journal club itself had been feeling a little bit more uncomfortable over the years and the gender bias in the way that questions were asked in particular seemed to be um, getting worse. So there were just a few times where, um, you know, if there was a more computational paper being presented, that's always harder because most people in neuro come from a biology background. So it's, um, you know, a bit harder to kind of dive in and evaluate that and for people to feel like they can ask good questions. But there were a few times where, you know, if they... uh, it seemed like more if male students were presenting these more computational papers, then there'd be kind of no questions and everyone would be like, oh, this is really impressive or like really hard or this is great work. And I just think it was very clear um, versus if women were presenting similar papers, then there would be like very kind of deep probing questions about uh, why they chose to use a particular method. Um, you know, and obviously the person presenting isn't the one who made the choice. It's about how to design the study. Um, so it was yeah, a little bit frustrating to see the kind of imbalance in those questions. And also just in general, you know, more men were uh, asking more questions, were interrupting the presentation to make a point more often um, rather than waiting till the end to ask um, kind of a next direction style question. Um, So just as part of, you know, wanting to promote a a more equitable culture within our own program in a place that is mainly students, uh, it felt like that would be a good place to start. Speaking of asking questions during a talk, this was one of the first examples of implicit bias that these students mentioned during our interview. So one of, oh, yeah. <laughs> one of the, the topics covered was this idea that the person who has the first question, let's say after a talk, um, matters for subsequent question answers. So if it's a male who asks the first question, like a male faculty member, it's women won't ask questions for the rest of the talk, essentially. Uh, you can like wait like an hour and then that effect starts to go away. Uh, so <laughs> after that, we, we started like in all of the situations that we could, like keeping little tallies of, of how this played out, like both in our journal club and in talks and the conferences. And it's pretty entertaining and sad sometimes to watch how this effect plays out over and over again. But we've tried at least to promote like uh, um, a thoughtful moderation in who uh, gets to ask the first question. Once they had decided that implicit bias was a problem worth focusing on, the students had to decide which topics to cover, which papers to read, and how to present those papers. Luckily, they had each other to talk through papers and practice with. So it was actually really hard to choose topics because there were so many things we wanted to cover. Um, But one of the things that I think uh, worked really well for us was that we got together as a group multiple times in the planning of this um, whole curriculum, basically, for the quarter so that we could have it kind of arc from like initial discussions of bias and just the pervasiveness of implicit bias all the way up through these kinds of interventions that are being studied right now. Um, And so we, we definitely intentionally strategically organized it in that way and coordinated with each other on what topics we felt were most important. Yeah. We like designed that arc in a way that would end, you know, start by showing that there really is a problem with like very good data that really you can't argue with is very clear and simple and then end with something that is kind of more hopeful about how to move forward. 
and then, um, you know, filled in like slots for each of ourselves in the middle. And then uh, people kind of went and found the most rigorous study that they could find that also was interesting to them within their kind of region of that arc. And we had this really nice database from a class on uh, diversity in science um, mm-hmm. that had been put together over the course of several years. So that was a great place mm-hmm. to start. We already had a kind of somewhat vetted set of papers um, to work from. You can imagine, I, I think, what it's like to get 10 plus people in your cohort to get together and have done something beforehand but we were motivated to do it so it it worked out but we picked papers first we like sourced from this one resource made like a kind of a big list and I think each people all went through those lists and kind of found things they they kind of identified with and wanted to to talk about and then people lightly to intensely read those things to some degree then we met then we like kind of shopped each person's ideas around um, multiple times actually which was Mm -hmm. impressive I think (laughs) Every single talk that we gave in Journal Club, we met up as a group oh, and yeah. did a practice talk and had pizza, which is great, yeah. <laughs> and basically just went through and made sure that each person who was giving a presentation felt really comfortable for whatever kinds of questions might be thrown at them. And that kind of like camaraderie was so helpful, I think, in yeah. being able to actually do this because at the beginning, even among us, uh, among the group of us who were willing to do this, there was still some uneasiness about whether this was like quote-unquote allowed um, and whether this would be uh, something that we could get in trouble for or like would we get asked questions that we didn't know how to answer and then that would make the problem even worse because it would make this sort of look bad Um, and so I think we did a really good job preparing each other and right before those that kind of final preparation and practice presentations there were several people who had you know some of us picked more than one paper and tried to fit them into one presentation because they were very related and a lot of these studies um are kind of smaller only have like one figure anyway but there were several papers that people coming up when they were really doing that more rigorous preparation were like oh i actually don't think that the methods of this were rigorous enough to really take anything from it and then they'd either you know, go to their other paper and do that alone or find help. We would help each other find like a backup that was um, that was a little bit more rigorous. What were some of the main findings and concepts they presented for her journal club presentation? Ariel presented a set of papers showing that scientists are actually biased in the way they interpret research that shows evidence of bias. One of the papers that we presented and at the beginning, <laughs> um, which I'm a big fan of, is this uh, research study that was done to show that the way that we react to the science um, when people are presenting evidence of bias is totally biased itself. So, um, like, for example, when presenting evidence of gender bias, men who read this are less likely to think that the science is rigorous. And that's strictly an evaluation of the science, um, whereas women are more likely to rate it as as being rigorous science. So... What this tells us is that we're not being objective as scientists and that even if we value that in our field, when you compare us to groups from the humanities, they, did, they replicated the study in the humanities and found no gender differences at all. And so it means that we're being less objective than they are in the social sciences, and that should, that should be a wake-up call for us. There's lots of different theories um, about it. So the most obvious one is just sort of this confirmation bias where if you already believe that gender bias exists, you're much more likely to think that that's true and incorporate that new evidence into your mindset. Um, Whereas if you don't think that that's true, then you might be more averse to it. But there's also things like system justification theory, this idea of maintaining a system of discrimination because it keeps a certain group in power um, and trying to maintain that kind of status quo. Things like implicit bias uh, are actually worse by people who think that they are objective and think that they aren't biased. Mm -hmm. And we... um, 
wanted to address that within our presentations and also really normalize the fact that, you know, we are human. That's why implicit bias exists. So one thing that we all tried to do if we were willing to do was start out our presentation by sharing part of our own implicit bias. Like, for instance, I am biased against women in science. I am a woman in science. Obviously, that's not beneficial to me, but we all have biases. The idea is to be able to identify them and counteract them and take a step back um, rather than saying, like, I... I don't have this problem and therefore it's, you know, offensive to me to even think that I might be acting in a certain way because the whole point is that it is an unconscious behavior. Since Ariel headed off the journal club with a discussion of evidence of bias in science, Jesse and Avery decided to explore what kind of interventions have been shown to reduce implicit bias. Jesse focused on studies that use knowledge from psychology and medicine about how to change addictive and other problematic behaviors. Coming back to like the intervention, so again, I presented on um, specifically like faculty search committees and how to diversify the incoming group. And, you know, this is uh, really complex interventions and really... Uh, yeah, this involves a lot of summarizing of years of research. Both of the studies that I presented used uh, some form of a training about implicit bias first for the faculty that were going to be on the search committees. And uh, they used a lot of existing uh, literature, both from psychology in terms of how to motivate people to make change, which some of the same stuff we learned in med school in terms of inter- like motivating a patient to change a problematic behavior where you uh, first... You know, you need to figure out what stage that they're at in the process of recognizing that they have a problem. So if you try to come in and give someone tools for addressing a problem that they don't really believe exists or uh, before they've really decided that it's something that they want to make a change about, then uh, it's not going to really be effective. And you kind of have to walk people through that trajectory. And I think that it's important to realize that, you know, about reinventing the wheel again, we don't need to... uh, come up with entirely new best practices for our own, you know, search committees or hiring processes. There's actually, you know, many, many decades of research on this work in other fields. And similarly, the the intervention sessions were also based on a lot of educational research about how to have an impactful session in just a few hours and how adult learners uh, learn best and retain the most information. And you have to be able to uh, realize that you can look beyond your own field for solutions and, and rely on, you know, work that people have done for centuries in some cases. Avery also looked at evidence-based interventions, but instead of focusing on applying existing bodies of knowledge, the study he presented delved into ways new technologies might help reduce implicit bias. My sort of thing in Journal Club has always been uh, throughout the, the presentations to pick things that seem a little wacky, but that are good science and then provocative in some way. Um, and so That's I, on brand. <laughs> so, so I, try, I tried to do that again uh, here with these, with with the diversity related ones, and so I picked a pretty interesting uh, study. Where basically what they did is they took women and they white women, and they had them do some yoga in VR, and that's fine. You know, you're in tai VR, chi. some Tai Chi. You're right, <laughs> Tai Chi. Oof. Thank you, Ariel. Uh, They're doing Tai Chi in VR. And so, you know, they're just doing Tai Chi. They have a fake instructor, and they're just going about their Tai Chi lives, and they take off the headset, and then, uh, you know, it's fine. Before and after, they they do an implicit association test, and we figure out your biases. But then we put you, you just do some Tai Chi. Then you can take some women who are white, and when you put them in VR this time, you change the color of their skin to be black. You don't say anything. You just do this. And then you have them take the implicit association test afterwards, and their bias uh, 
towards black people goes down. And not only does it go down, but it stays down for as long out as they tested, which is like unique among interventions to reduce implicit association scores. So the point really is that things like, you know, these sort of like what I was saying before in terms of things that seem unintuitive, but that are actually impactful. Um, turns out, you know, walking a mile on someone's shoes is, is like a real thing that has like impact. Being like embodied in something um, goes a long way for your own ability to like tackle the psychological underpinnings of things like bias. I think there's a, a lot of, of, of cool research across the spectrum of putting people in VR to try to impact their their um, feelings of ownership over some weird body or like over something like there's a great one that Ariel brought up. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> with the logger, the, the yeah. cut down redwoods. Yeah, they had people who didn't believe in global warming uh, tediously chop down a redwood tree in VR, and that's correlated with them using less paper towels. <laughs> Super interesting, and I think it's something, you know, uh, you can buy a, a VR headset that attached to your phone for like $100, 50 bucks, and pop people in it for 30 minutes, and if that has like a meaningful impact. So I, I think I think the, the future is bright for interventions. Um, We've got the technology. We have a lot of the data. So just asking people to empathize, like, you, you know, as you would imagine, maybe uh, it actually doesn't do anything uh, ever. Like, it doesn't help people. And most interventions that, like, just tell you to just imagine, you know, that you're black for a minute, like, it has almost no impact and definitely doesn't have, like, long-term impact um, for most people. And so I think this is, this is really, I think, a point that I, I want to hammer home, which is, that, like, counterintuitive... Uh, that maybe that you'd have to literally just see it doesn't matter the context but just seeing yourself with a different skin tone like and having visual motor synchrony across your your actions that is what drives this feeling of ownership like the most saliently um, and you can drive feeling ownership of anything you could i mean there's wacky studies that'll like give people like alien arms and you're like that's my alien arm like if i stab the alien arm in vr you feel pain for a second and the the point being that <laughs> you know you really you can create these feelings using like things like VR, but but you can't just ask people to to have them. While there's a lot of research about implicit bias in science, the students who organized the Journal Club came face-to-face -face with some of the limitations and gaps in this research over the course of designing this Journal Club. For example, almost all the research that's been done about implicit bias in science focuses on gender, not any other minoritized groups. I mean, I think what, what struck me and I think others too is like the pervasiveness of the issues that we were looking into at all levels of the pipeline and just how leaky that pipeline actually is, but also the lack of literature on other underrepresented minorities. Because we were forced to, not forced, but we, we restricted our um, most of our presentations to gender bias simply because that's where most of the research was. But it was hard because we, we wanted to talk about issues faced by other underrepresented groups and we, we just couldn't because there wasn't the data there so you can imagine someone would give a presentation or we'd, we'd find some paper that was interesting and anyone would ask a question like what about this other group and the answer is no one knows right what's up with this other group there's it's hard to power a study and just like other fields of research sometimes the papers that study implicit bias just aren't very good they use bad statistics or don't collect data well just like a neuroscience paper or genetics paper could since one goal of a journal club is to help us evaluate how good a certain scientific paper is, 
We asked Ariel, Jesse, and Avery whether or not they included these weaker papers in their journal club. If we had had more time, we would have loved to dive into some of the papers that we thought could have done better and really talk about those. But since we did have a stake in this game, you know, we wanted to present the stuff that we thought was rigorous because we wanted to make a point, ultimately. Um, and so I think um, we, with every single paper that we presented, we always address limitations of the papers. Because no matter what the paper is, there's always going to be limitations. There's always going to be future directions to take it in. And so I think that was important to us to always keep that in there, even though we did, we were trying to, you know, make a point. So we were especially curious, how did people react to this project? For the most part, the reception was really encouraging and uh, really nice. And I think um, that really came down to all of the preparation that we did. So people really appreciated that they could ask these more in-depth questions and that we had answers and that we could have discussions about them. So a lot of people were like, oh, I really learned a lot. I, this really surprised me. I had to go back and reflect after that because they were presented with enough evidence that they could believe it and therefore like move on to the next step. Um, and a lot of people thanked us afterward for doing mm -hmm. it. We also had a few people like, you know, postdocs or other people would come to some of our talks because they were interested in it and really appreciated that as well. But some people at the end of the quarter in particularly had expressed that they, um, still felt like this wasn't the best use of journal club time, that it wasn't about neuroscience, um, and that, you know, they wanted to be spending the time reading the scientific literature. And I think that um, that was a bit frustrating to me because I feel like this is, um, you know, part of our training, especially if we're all going to be leaders in academia. This is a problem within our own institutions and within our culture. And so it is an important part of our training as scientists to be able to do it and reading a new kind of paper. Often these analyses are like the same kind of models that uh, neuroscience papers have, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, just mm -hmm. the data going into it is different. Right. But um, so it is still like a lot of the stats are really relevant. A lot of the models are really relevant. Um, we're still learning new science by reading these papers. And also a lot of them are based in psychology, which <laughs> most of our neuroscience papers have some aspect of psychology. So I, behavior, right? yeah, I do think it's really relevant. And I wish that people had been more willing to speak up about that earlier in the quarter so that we could have had those conversations as a group rather than I think there was some kind of like building resentment from the few people who didn't like it that uh I wish that we'd found a more effective way to address earlier. Yeah, I also think we um, worked really hard, you know, with the, these preparation sessions. We tried to, you know, ask any probing question that we could think of or um, kind of play devil's advocate in our preparation, which made us all really ready to answer questions. And like Ariel was saying, we were able to back each other up. So if someone got kind of blindsided with a question that, um, you know, if you're especially if you're a member of one of these groups, sometimes um, it can feel like an attack when it's not. And we worked really hard to try to, uh, take every question seriously and to um, assume the best of the question asker and really address it. And I think the fact that we could start off doing that well then made people really comfortable asking questions about stuff that is more sensitive throughout the quarter. So um, because we kind of set that precedent and then really followed through with it, we did get some really good questions that really um, kind of got at a lot of the nuance of this that otherwise we might not have been able to. Mm -hmm. And in other places where we've given these talks uh, subsequently, um, in summary of what we all learned, there was really positive feedback there as well. And um, some of the faculty who went to these talks would stay and talk with me afterward for like hours about how to implement things in their own like admissions policies and things like that. So it definitely feels like something that's going to be carried forward and that made an impact on people in a way that other workshops hadn't previously. In addition to giving talks within their own institution on implicit bias, this group of students has also found themselves talking about implicit bias in other contexts, like scientific conferences. 
For example, Jesse attended a lunch for women in STEM at a neuroscience conference last year, and although everyone at the table cared a lot about implicit bias, Jesse was the only one able to explain the data behind implicit bias. Uh, several of us found that we were the only person at the table, you know, at all levels of training, faculty members who really care about this work, but often we were the only people at the table who actually knew about the underlying data. Um, and so someone would kind of be like, oh, yeah, I wonder if this plays in. And we'd be like, yeah, actually, there's a study. <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, so hopefully that's kind of, you know, uh, progressed and perpetuated. And other people have now read this work and are sharing it with others, too. But yeah. Each of the students we talked to had a different idea of what the biggest takeaway from this experience was, from the need to create proactive change, to the ways data can support anecdotal stories and bring more people to the table, to the way that the psychology of bias can just be weird. I think institutions in general and large organizations where there is systemic bias tend to only create action in reactionary ways. So when something goes terribly wrong and it's uh, widely known is when they're most willing to make change in a big way. Um, and so I think what we can do on the ground right now is create those in a proactive way, the kinds of programs, and the kinds of changes that we want to see so that when those moments come and people, you can never really predict when someone's going to have that moment where they realize that bias is still a thing. <laughs> um, but when they do to be ready to, to give them that, the information of that, like, here's what we want, here's what we think should change, or just like, here's the problem at hand to be able to have those discussions. I don't know if I was particularly surprised by this, but the importance was really uh, reinforced for me. Um, the idea of how to go about enacting uh, any kind of social change. So I think both in a lot of the papers we were reading, particularly about interventions, but also in our interactions with our peers who maybe haven't thought as much about this, uh, it's just really obvious how important it is to not vilify people. And um, and that's why it's so important to you know take a step back and evaluate the data objectively and try to remove your own emotion from it as much as you can. I think if you come into this justifiably angry, um, then that can really feel like someone is being targeted and accused and that can actually, you know, be detrimental to overall progress. So really being able to have a space where people are willing to have uncomfortable conversations and willing to really listen to each other instead of just calling out problematic behavior and shutting down conversation is, uh, is really important and something that we should be able to do with our colleagues and our peers and, and work toward. I think what perhaps surprised me but shouldn't have is that like many psychological phenomena people's ideas about bias are uh, typically wrong and ways of addressing it are very um, uh, counterintuitive and I think it was interesting to see um, like researchers come up with some interventions and be like oh this makes sense this is definitely what we should do force people to do this thing it just like totally doesn't work right and they're like all right <laughs> How about a totally weird thing? And it would, it would, you know, be, you know, non-zero levels of effective. And I think, like, it, it's interesting to see what kinds of things have impact. And it's because, you know, we're complicated. Um, and I, so I, I think that was the impactful thing for me was, like, how unintuitive, like, possible interventions and even the effects of things like bias can be. Um, you'd think, like, someone has a bias that is bad, there's some bad outcome, but the outcome might just be weird and hard to understand. So. Yeah, I think another important takeaway, too, is that um, a lot of times when people are trying to make the argument that these biases exist and that there's discrimination or inequality at any level, a lot of the times the way that people 
go about making a powerful statement is through anecdotes. Um, and that puts a lot of burden on the person who's sharing that. So I think one of the ways that we realized was really powerful about this was um, by replacing those anecdotes with data, we were not put on the spot in the same kind of personal targeted way, but we could still have the same impact. And I think a lot of the impact came from it being a group effort and from the fact that the data we presented was rigorous. Um, and so I think going forward, it makes sense to have both, you know, when people are willing to share to, to include that and to have those stories amplified, but also to have the data so that you're not always on the spot. Now, it's pretty remarkable that this group of students was able to pull off something like this at all. Not only is it hard to coordinate a bunch of busy schedules, it's also hard to do something like this that hasn't been done before, especially something that challenges the status quo. But this group of students was lucky in that they were already having honest conversations about bias amongst themselves. That made it easier to turn their idea into reality. So I think a, a cool thing about our individual cohort is that we were always sort of like this with each other in terms of like um, candid, uh, open discussions about issues that we faced and being in support of each other. I think that was why it, like we were the year to do this thing. Um, and I, I think it, um, for sure people who didn't feel as, as uh, close in regards like the things I just spoke of definitely felt closer after we did this, this series and felt more open to talk about these things. There were a few men in our cohort who were a little bit um, super supportive, but a little bit less comfortable talking about this stuff, gave them kind of the confidence to be an ally a bit more, um, which is nice um, and helped to give us, I think it, you know, made conversations more efficient because we all have a shared language now. So if I go talk mm -hmm. to someone who's not experiencing the same thing, it takes them less time to understand my perspective. But I don't think that um, that the the community and the support was lacking from the beginning. I think that's part of why we were able to do it. All the students involved in the Implicit Bias Journal Club published a write-up on the papers they presented on Stanford's neuroscience blog called Neurite West. We've linked to the blog entries on our website if you'd like to check them out. The database of papers related to implicit bias was compiled by Miriam Goodman and Jennifer Raymond, and you can find that in the show notes as well. And while we were only able to interview a handful of the students involved, we want to give a huge thank you to the other students who took part in this, Manasi Iyer, Tucker Fisher, Corey Fernandez, Eshed Margalit, Isabel Lowe, and Luke Brezovic. The students we interviewed were kind enough to send us the slides of the mini workshops they've been giving about all the data they discussed, and we decided to adapt it for our own program's retreat. We are also hoping to share it with other programs at UCSF as a way to encourage all programs to have open and honest discussions about implicit bias, diversity, and inclusion. Overall, we thought our own program's implicit bias discussion went well. Students, postdocs, and faculty all attended and seemed willing to have difficult conversations. In fact, a few faculty followed up with us after the workshop to share ideas for improving our program. And now, we and the program have a growing collection of papers we can cite when thinking about implicit bias. But that's just how we felt. How did our classmates and professors react to this discussion? A few postdocs told us they wish they had had a discussion like this in their own graduate programs. You know, the, the night before we had the discussion about um, uh, 
uh, imposter syndrome, yeah. which I also thought was very, very valuable, and especially creating a safe space for people to share their own experiences. I think it is a massively huge undertaking. Yeah. I definitely not, didn't have something like that in my grad school, and I know a lot of people that would have benefited from that. First, I was extremely jealous uh, of uh, for a few people because I've been in similar discussions in other institutions, um, also in other international institutions and in India. Um, and many, many such discussions, and I had never seen such a more welcoming and mature community. So I felt jealous that I was never supported the way that that uh, I thought that this discussion went, but I also felt really proud and privileged to be a part of a UCSF uh, student and postdocs, people, uh, community that can discuss these issues with, uh, with great maturity. And a first-year student appreciated having this discussion early in the year and early in her time in grad school. I just thought it was really great that there was some sort of programming to bring up these issues early on, especially because retreat is something that we have going on so early in the year. To really set a mood for the year and set a standard for individuals and then open those conversations early on. Echoing Monique's sentiments... Brian worried that people would forget the lessons of this workshop as time went on, and he suggested that workshops like this happen more often, maybe even as a part of graduate student coursework. I, I don't know how many years neuroscience students here are in classes for, but I feel like, to me, the people that are most vulnerable to these kinds of implicit biases are the ones that aren't in established labs, aren't in yeah. established positions, yeah, which definitely. are typically the more junior students. So to me, it would makes sense that, you know, these kinds of discussions really aim to target first and second years. And I think that's what the purpose of the retreat was really aimed yeah. towards. Um, but a reinforcement of that could be during class, during like class sessions and stuff like that. Yeah. Be like, hey, we'll do a review session, but also we want to do a presentation on this. And yeah. then, you know, I think that would be a good venue for that. For some people we interviewed, our workshop was a formalization of discussions they had been having with friends and classmates before. Not at Asilomar, but I know me and Kate <laughs> bring this up and talk about it a lot before Asilomar. And uh, mo- mostly about the, the rage that's associated. Like, it's just crazy that, you know, there's all this stigma just on being a woman in science. That's completely unfair standards. Um, and to other people... Um in my other universities who were felt unloved when we discussed about these issues. So as an example, I can say that every time we brought such a topic up, it would be rare to hear support. And most of the times we would hear things like, ah, okay, but you know, it's meritocracy and we only can support meritocratic uh, people who are meritorious and not people who are not meritorious and so on. Um, Or other such really random things which are so hurtful for people whose lived reality is of experiencing bias and fights. For others, this workshop was a place to learn about implicit bias in science. Um, And the discussion was really interesting and eye-opening to introduce what implicit bias is and show that in science in particular, there is a lot of implicit bias in basically every aspect of our world, from reviewing papers to... Uh, promoting professors to uh, as people decide to have a career in science at all. Um, And I think uh, one thing that was clear from a lot of the research that they presented was that uh, in particular the implicit bias 
uh, is against women. Basically, that everything is harder. There's a bias basically against women in sort of every step of science. Um, and so this was uh, really interesting for me to learn about. Several people we spoke to commented on our focus on the data behind implicit bias. Brian said it was exactly the right way to reach scientists because scientists love data. That was honestly, I think the way the presentation went was exactly the way that communication to scientists and among scientists needs to happen, right? Here's the evidence. And then furthermore, how can we build upon that evidence? Because as graduate students or postdocs or even PIs, we kind of extend work that's built from other people. And, and that's exactly what we need to do when it comes to having discussions about, you know, pretty serious topics, um, such as implicit bias. So I think, I think the way that the presentation happened was exactly how it needed to be presented. On the other hand, Abalasha had a slightly different reaction. I kind of feel sad for people who need data to be proven and shown that there is implicit bias in the world because it kind of means that you've never spoken to or nobody trusts you enough to speak about their experiences with you. Fortunately, at least one month out from the workshop, many people we talked to mentioned how the workshop had reverberated into their lab life. Yeah, I I had some good conversations with uh, people in my laboratory. Um, Outside of my laboratory, I talked to my girlfriend about it, um, mostly from the perspective of, hey, look, we did this during the retreat because she was organizing a retreat for her program as well. And so I said, here's some things you might want to consider adding to the retreat. And she said, oh, I'll look into it. And I thought that was a really good way to kind of um, kind of like open that bridge. After this point, almost like for three, four days, my lunch discussions were on implicit bias and how, um, how amazing I felt to be a part of this neuroscience community at UCSF. What was cool was that sort of when, with this in mind, when I came back to the lab after the retreat, um, I sort of started noticing things more often that just happen in day-to-day life that you might sort of ignore otherwise. Um, And one example was just at a a department seminar, um, a male professor was giving the talk about the research in his lab, and people were asking questions from the audience in a relatively informal setting. and a female graduate student asked a question uh, that was related to his research, uh, and a reasonable question, uh, and his response was, uh, he said, oh, who are you, reviewer three? And this was sort of a joke, suggesting that this was like a tough question, um, you know, that he, that a hard reviewer would ask. Um, but he, like, answered the question, and everyone at the time thought that it was sort of funny. Um, And then what I noticed was a few minutes later, another male PI asked him another question, which was also a sort of reasonable, difficult question. And his response instead was uh, to sort of smile and thank the other professor. And he actually gave the other PI a dollar, again, as a joke. Um, But uh, it was this sort of thinking about implicit bias, this just sort um, sort of struck me that... Um, if you didn't know all of the people in the room, and they all know each other, but if you didn't know that and you didn't know them, uh, then this was just something that uh, was sort of a funny, innocent joke, but actually could be viewed in a different way, where when the female graduate student asks a question, 
she's sort of given a hard time by the professor, whereas when the male professor asks a question, he's rewarded, literally rewarded with money. And as an outsider, that could sort of further um, enforce the idea that uh, it's hard for women in science and that uh, we, and so I think we should be doing more to basically think about how the actions that we do can be viewed by other people, even if our intentions are good. Still, people had good suggestions for how to improve this workshop for future groups to present it. But I think maybe for future we should work on more like um, ways to fix that. I mean, I always play with this idea. I also think about it also in terms of like uh, manuscript uh, reviews, maybe just making it blinded on both sides. Like if we just covered the name on like CVs or, uh, you know, publications when, you know, you apply for a job, then uh, maybe that'll eliminate it. But I don't know how feasible that actually is to do. You guys address the fact that there aren't articles out there to discuss race, but I think in general there hasn't been a discussion around racial issues with our class and racial diversity and how that affects individuals in science and I think just in general that's lacking from STEM right now. Uh, I mean maybe this is just my own personal biases coming to play here but I wish there was more of a deeper dive into some of the discussion points. I mean I feel like it was very rushed in the sense of we didn't have a huge amount of time to talk about things and that's not again on the fault of the organizers that's more of like oh there's this time block we want to talk about this and it's kind of hard to do a discussion like this in you know however many hours it was. So I wish we had more time because I think the topics that we did talk about were extremely valuable and relevant. And I guess that's one thing I wish. Or the other part was I wish it were maybe split over two nights so that we would have some time to kind of digest what we went over and then revisit it the next night or something like that. Yeah. So that's something that I think um, it, it's a very heavy topic and it's a very it's a difficult topic. And I think some people do need that time to kind of internalize the lessons or the you know the evidence that um, you guys presented to us because I mean even when you read a paper you don't just read it and then move on and, and just like immediately understand it you have to kind of chew on it a little bit so that was one of my biggest things last thought <laughs> that that of course I feel super great that I'm part of this UCSF community but we should realize that even internationally good reputed big institutions are not mature enough to have this conversation and so it's extremely important to document what was done at Stanford, for instance, what was done here, that this community could be created and, and can now support young people speaking for what they think is a more equitable world. We here at the Fagot Bay, of course, want to emphasize Abulasha's last point one more time. We need to document how institutions like Stanford and UCSF can make space for discussions like these. To that end, we've compiled a list of all of the papers we cited or discussed during this workshop that can be found in the show notes of this episode. We'd also love to have more people bring this workshop to their institutions. Several other programs at UCSF use these slides that the Stanford students gave us in their own workshops, and we hope that we can expand even further. If you're interested in implementing this implicit bias workshop at your institution, please give us a shout at thefogatbay at gmail.com. Bye. <laughs> 
The Foggy Bay is made possible by generous support from the UCSF Executive Vice Chancellor and Provost Office and the Associated Students of the Graduate Division. Our producers are me, Anna Lipkin, Tara Aiken, Allison Comrie, Rogeri Deshika, Blake Adama, and Ben Mansky. Music in this episode is by John Shore and Blue Dot Sessions. We're hard at work putting together our third season, so to keep up with us, follow us on Twitter or find us on Facebook, both at The Fog at Bay. You can find our past seasons on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever podcasts can be found. 